1: Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ
0: and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at WBEZ.org slash events.
1: From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette and I am Greta Johnson. Nerdette is a show where we talk to your favorite or soon-to-be favorite people, and this week's guest probably should already be one of your favorite authors. We are talking with Barbara Kingsolver. I got to hug Barbara Kingsolver. She's the author of more than a dozen books, including Poisonwood Bible and The Bean Trees and Prodigal Summer. She won a James Beard Award, and she was shortlisted for a Pulitzer, no big deal. Her newest book is called Unsheltered. It's a novel, and it is very much about the current political climate.
2: I always start... A novel with a big question, and my my question this time is, what in the heck? I mean, is this the end of the world as we know it? Yeah. Because when I look around, every kind of shelter that um, most of us have come to depend on um, seems to be failing, and for people who are you know sort of middle class people. Reaching middle age who have done what they feel like is everything right, followed Mm -hmm. the rules, Mm -hmm. many times the results are not what they expected. There's no Easter egg at the end of the hunt. So no great job at the end of the college degree. And I thought it would be interesting to contrast the behavior of people of this moment with what they did at some earlier time when, likewise, it seemed to be the end of the world as they knew it. Thank you.
1: As I mentioned, this novel is called Unsheltered, and it's largely a story about how people behave when it seems like all the rules that they grew up believing in don't actually exist anymore. The book takes place in two different storylines. We have the lead-up to the 2016 presidential election, and then the aftermath of the Civil War in, like, the 1870s. And the through-line actually is the house that is falling apart, because both characters in each timeline live in the same dilapidated house. So in 2015, we have Willa and her husband. They're both super underemployed and really freaked out about it. And then in the 1870s, we have Thatcher. He's a science teacher who really wants to teach evolution to the children of his school. But the town leaders are like super freaked out about evolution because, you know, sometimes we get freaked out about facts. It's a thing that seems to happen. So I started the conversation with Barbara by asking her Why has she decided to explore the 1870s in comparison with today?
2: I chose that because um, it was a time of immense polarization, at least as polarized as now. The country had broken in half. These two halves had been at war with each other for five years, and then it was ended by treaty, and everyone was supposed to just get over it, but it doesn't work like that. So there was, in addition to just this, you know, psychological disagreement, there was profound insecurity, economic insecurity. Every family was was damaged by that war. There was nobody left untouched by that war. So people had lost their homes, their livelihoods, their land, their loved ones. So it was a, like now, it was a time of great physical insecurity. And into that came um, Charles Darwin, who um, suggested for the first time ever that it was possible that the same natural laws that have, uh, you know, that apply to all living things, the fit laws of physics and chemistry and natural selection, also apply to us. So he's saying, what if we weren't put here to rule the planet? What if? We're part of the planet. This was a rather innocent suggestion on his part. It just seemed very clear to him, but it didn't go down well. So it just just people were completely disoriented by this, and it made them angry and what they kept saying is, "No, no, burn him. You know, hang him in effigy in the public square. We want to go back to an earlier time when we were secure in our position of superiority in the universe. Well, that reminded me a lot of one way of reacting to the present. And I thought it would be interesting to compare and contrast.
1: Do you think partly why you wanted to look at the 1870s was to make you feel less dire about how things are now?
2: No, not really. (laughs) No, I mean, it's you could say because I
1: mean, um, partly it does provide perspective, right? Like, this isn't the worst things have ever been, and it won't
2: be, you know, like things will be worse and better over time as they always are, right? History does repeat itself, but you know, you can take comfort from that, or you can be really depressed by that because people (laughs) keep doing the same stupid things again and again. My reason for constructing the novel in this way is that I wanted to look at the crisis we're in and kind of examine how we're getting through it or not. And it's really impossible to understand a crisis completely when you're in the middle of it. You know, Mm -hmm, the fish doesn't mm -hmm. know about the water. You know, we're just – this is – it's – you know, and people don't really like it if you say, well – You know, look how dumb we are. Um, Nobody wants to hear that. However, if you look at the past, you know, people are always all too happy to say, oh, look how dumb they were. Mm -hmm. And if I could look at a moment in the past that's particularly relevant to the times we're in, well, then I could just let people put two and two together.
1: So, I would love for you to read a passage from this book, if you okay. don't mind. Sure. Uh, the moment that I, it just really stuck with me. So, I actually listened to the audiobook, which was really. Oh, fun, you did? Yeah, I got so to I hear read you, you read, read, this read it. To yeah, me, which yeah. was really delightful. So, I look forward to you reading this passage to me again. Um, but I'll set it up a little bit. We are at the point where the. Uh, The main character, Willa, in the modern time period, her father-in-law has just died after, like, a really horrible, gruesome disease that she partly helped kind of usher him through. Uh And they've just spread some of his ashes at a cemetery, sort of illegally, but they went for it. And she and her daughter, Tig, are walking out.
2: Yeah, and I will add that she and her daughter Tig, who's is, who's is who's a millennial, who's just uh, <laughs> she and her mother just are always at each other's throats. Mm-hmm. They just can't let well enough alone. Tig is one of those daughters who I think you would say what my mother said about me uh, <laughs> when I was that age, which is that if you threw her in the river, she would float upstream. Um, that's Tig. <laughs> so so you know her were want to love each other, but they just keep arguing. And this is um, uh, Tig and Willa leaving the cemetery. And uh, Willa is just pretty devastated by her life as it is, all of the things that she'd hoped for that haven't panned out for her. So Tig says, poor mama, leaning her springy head against Willa's shoulder. I know. It feels like the end of the world when you can't have the things you always wanted. But it's not the end of the world. There's some other place to go. Sorry to tell you, Willis said, but that's a very old chestnut. My mother used to say when God slams a door on you, he opens a window. Tig gave this two seconds of respectful consideration before rejecting it. No, that's not the same. I'm saying when God slams a door on you, it's probably a shit storm. (laughs) You're going to end up in rubble. But it's okay, because without all that crap overhead, you're standing in the daylight. Without a roof over your head, Willis said, it kind of feels like you might die. Yeah, but you might not. For sure, you won't find your way out of the mess if you keep picking up bricks and stuffing them in your pockets. What you have to do is look for blue sky. I just love that
1: so much for a number of reasons. I mean, I think partly it really ties into the idea of being unsheltered, mm-hmm. right? Which you mm-hmm. talked about a little bit earlier. The yeah. There are so many ways that we like to feel safe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the big arguments that you make in this book is that sometimes it's, it's not until you feel unsafe that you are actually able to see the
2: sky. Exactly. All of the characters in this novel, both in the present day and uh, in the 19th century, are dealing with that sort of double-edged tension that's described by the word sheltered. It can mean safe and sound, but sheltered can also mean naive, unworldly, unprepared for the changes ahead. That's really what the book is about.
1: So... Tell me a little bit about the 1870s timeline. I'm super interested in Mary Treat, who's a woman who I had never heard of before, but she existed in real life.
2: She's a real person. She was a real person. I, um, I knew that I wanted uh, my 19th century characters to be invested in this Darwinian uh, debate. And I just wasn't finding, you know, I was reading about all these men. There weren't that many of them. Uh, Darwin had, had few friends, um, <laughs> alas. Left. Thank, thank no, it's terrible. I mean, poor guy. He just thought, oh, everyone will want to know about this. This is and fun. Little did he know. I mean, Ugh. thank goodness there was no internet. Um, <laughs> he was very, very widely hated. People were just not ready to accept a whole new way of looking at the world. But he had a few champions. I read a lot about Asa Gray mm-hmm. in Boston. I read about these different men, and none of them was really floating my boat. And then I just <laughs> ran across a reference to Mary Treat, who was a correspondent, an important um, you know, kind of friend and correspondent of Darwin's. So she was a very prolific writer, naturalist, lady scientist, as as they were called in the 19th century. As to her personal life, nothing. Mm -hmm. I couldn't find anything. Nobody has ever written a biography of her. No one's heard of her. Wow. Um, I could only find out that she lived in Vineland, New Jersey. So I went there, found out she was an amazing person. All of these things that she does in the novel, I- including spending a morning with her fingers stuck in the in the <laughs> mouth. Well, it's not exactly a mouth, but in, in, the, in, in the trap of a Venus flytrap <laughs> to see what will happen. She's that kind of, she's definitely a nerdette. Um, <laughs> yeah, the first time you
1: see her in the book, the neighbors are looking at her and she's like in the grass, she's looking lying. around.
2: Face down in the grass. And and the neighbor is saying, is she dead? <laughs> What's happening? And his wife says, no. Now and again, she moves. So she's, you know, looking at spiders. They don't know what she's doing. But it turns out she's just so extremely fascinated by the natural world. And she's also one of these rare people who just doesn't seem to care at all what people oh, think of it's her. It's so refreshing. Um, <laughs> and so she serves as kind of the the moral center, in a way, mm-hmm. of, of, of her part of the story. But I also found out in this town, Vineland really was established in the 1860s as a utopian community by this egotistical... <laughs> Leader who, you know, bought all this land, a real estate mogul, you know, he lays out the streets, brings in the railroad, brings in these immigrants to do all the hard work, and then, you know, invites like rich people to come and attend lecture series. That's the Victorian idea of a perfect world. Yes, exactly. And they, and, you know, everyone thought, well, this will work well. And (laughs) he owned the hotels and he was the mayor and he was the, you know, the postmaster. He was just like he ran everything. And I thought, okay, this is an interesting parallel here. And, of course, he's kind of this bully. And when people get afraid, they line up behind him. And so that went back to the whole question I wanted to really study is what makes us gravitate toward or away from these leaders who promise us in dangerous times that – They can make everything the way it used to be. They can keep us safe from moving forward.
1: After the break, Barbara talks about what it's like to narrate her own audiobooks, which is actually very rare for a novelist. She says she really enjoys acting out the characters and bringing the books to life.
2: The sex scenes, you know, that's kind of like like there's this, you know, the director and the engineer are staring at you and you just like (laughs) try to go into character. That's funny because I blushed even like in my kitchen. Like, wow, Barbara. I had to read that. (laughs) I know. With men watching me, you just try to get through it all in one take.
1: You're listening to
0: Nerdette.
2: Um, Well, from a biological perspective, (laughs) um, I... I I think, you know, it's important to remember that our all of our all of our elements will be recycled. Uh whatever happens to us, you know, our carbon will still be in the world and I kind of like the idea of of being uh reconstituted as a maple tree. So, um, you know, that's a hopeful perspective.
1: <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do I feel like it was really funny describing this book in a production meeting today because I feel like there is hope in it, but it's also like I I think a lot of it is that you 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 count your victories where you can, you know.
2: Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. and there isn't any one thing that I expect people, you know, to take from this book because a, a literary fiction is many things to many people. Right, so, of course. I think that it will it will offer you whatever it is that you go looking for in this hmm. book. But I do think the kind of The big story here is that things collapse in order for us to be able to see the sky. And honestly, I have two millennial daughters who are so wise, who are continually educating me about everything in the world, from politics to tattoos. (laughs) So I wrote this book as kind of my love letter to millennials, because I really believe with all my heart that the people who are mostly in charge of this country right now, having formed their vision of the world in the 1950s and 60s mostly, when it was a whole different world, when it seemed like there was always going to be plenty of everything, they're clueless. They, they really don't. They really can't. It's not even their fault. They can't know how to get us out of the fix we're in. Today's problems can't be fixed by yesterday's people. They're going to be fixed by tomorrow's people. That is optimistic. Yeah. That's beautiful. Well, glad you think so, because I'm also saying it's all on you. I know, I know. I
0: get that. (laughs) I I feel that. (laughs) I'm picking up on that, Barbara.
1: (laughs) So you you narrated this book. I recorded the audiobook. You recorded yeah. the audiobook, yes. and you've done that for almost all your books, Yes, right?
2: all except one when I was unfortunately busy having a baby oh. on the week that they needed me to go into the studio. But apart from that, <laughs> um, I have um, gone into the studio to record all of my audiobooks, and I love to do that. I feel like that's pretty rare for a fiction author especially. You are right about that. The publishers don't usually let us do it. They, they don't let not, you. They don't let us, no. Um, I mean, they let me, and I'm always so <laughs> <laughs> I feel it, nonfiction books—they like the author to read, you know, because obviously, if it's right. Tre- if it's Trevor Noah's autobiography, right? You well, want Trevor Noah to read you that exactly. autobiography, but. For fiction, the trend now mm-hmm. it more and more is for um, for the publishers to hire actors to do that, and almost never do they let the authors do it. So every, but I love to do it. So every time I go into the studio, I feel like it's an audition for my next <laughs> job, and so I try to do it really well. But um, I love to do it, and it's kind of um, it's kind of a, a completion of the process for me because I've had these people talking to me in my brain for years. (laughs) I know exactly what they sound like. So... It's very kind of thrilling for me to go into the studio and just close my eyes and be still and channel them and hmm. let Tig sound like Tig yeah. and let Willa sound like Willa and Nick, you know, and I had to say all those, you know, obscene things that he <laughs> said, just roll them right out there and uh, in English and in Greek. And um, the sex scenes, you know, you just, that's yeah. kind of like like there's this, you know, the director and the engineer are staring at you <laughs> and you just like try to go into character. That's funny, I blushed even like in my (laughs) kitchen. Like, wow, Barbara. I had to read that. I know with men watching me, you just try to get through it all in one take. Um, But um, anyway, yeah, I love it. I love it. That's
1: really cool. I can't help but imagine, you know, you spend so much time writing this book. I do. I do. And then you are in the studio reading it out loud, mm-hmm. are there moments when you're just like, oh, that sentence? Like, if I could if I could redo this again, or do you have—are you good at sort of, like, closing the book and being like, no, this is done, it's written, this is what it is, now I'm just going to read it?
2: Well, with a new book, that's no problem, because I'm—well, I'm very lucky that I never have to turn in a book before it's finished. Mm-hmm. So by the time I've turned in a final manuscript, I've already you're revised done. it, you know, 800 times, the last two times we're just going through and, like, hitting, you know, undo, <laughs> redo. You know, I'm really, really happy uh, and content that this is exactly the book that I want it to be. When it could be an issue is when I go back, as I just did, to record a book that I wrote 30 years ago because of my oh, almost, sure. thir- almost, not quite, but almost 30 years ago, uh, I hadn't looked at it, you know, since I was (laughs) 32 years old or whatever when I wrote it. And so the weekend before I went into the studio, I thought, "Mm, I should probably read this book Um, (laughs) just to reacquaint myself with the, the names of the characters. And there was a bit of that, oh, my god, who wrote this? Um, oh, that would have been me at age 32. You know, and so so there was a little bit of a tussle and it was it was never, you know, there was never like grammatical errors or anything, but right. there were there were many passages that were written not as I would write them now, right? Um, Which, I think, like, thank God, kind of right. Well, I think, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, yes, of course. I mean, you hope that you're changing and that you're maturing as a writer. Right. And initially, I did kind of want to r- rewrite everything, and then, <laughs> and then after a while, I ra- I started recognizing the patterns. I think that well, this was written by a writer in her 30s. I think it was maybe. Sort of less emotionally restrained than mm-hmm. I am as a writer now. I think that I'm more economical as a writer, that I'm perhaps more, yeah, sort of play my cards closer to my vest, if that's the expression. Uh-huh. Uh, kind of like leave the reader more to his or her own devices than I did then. And I also thought about the fact that plenty of people tell me, you know, send me letters every week to say that is their favorite book. Yeah. And maybe that's the writer who speaks best to them at this moment in their lives. Maybe they're in their 30s. Maybe, maybe they're not. But I guess I had to come to terms with the fact that it's really okay for all of these. All of the writers I have been throughout my life are still allowed to speak. And so I had to really make that piece with the younger Barbara before I went into the studio. And then I just, then I just, I did it. I owned it. I did it as the Barbara in her 30s and and it worked out fine. Oh, my gosh. I love that. Now you should listen to it. <laughs> I will listen to it. I would love to listen
1: to it. And yeah. there's
2: a uh, the sex scenes in that <laughs> and that and that book were shorter. That's interesting. I've gotten sort of yeah. I've gotten emotionally oh, more restrained, key, but, but sexually se- more but detailed. Sexually more, yeah. Detailed. That's an interesting aspect oh of the of the evolution of Barbara. Well, I
1: have to say, I'm really glad that we were able to come to that conclusion together. <laughs> oh,
2: me too.
1: <laughs> Barbara Kingsolver, thank you so much for coming on your net.
2: You're very welcome. This was fun.
1: (laughs) So I was just out of town for a long weekend. And I have to say, like, for some reason, I ended up in several spontaneous conversations about the apocalypse. And I can't tell you how many times I ended up referring to things that happened in this book. So if you want something great to read to help you argue with people about when the world will end, Unsheltered is your book. The show is produced by myself, Greta Johnson, along with Justin Bull. Our co-creator is Trisha Bobita, and our executive producer is Brendan Banaszak. And our intern is Sophie Lalonde. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on NPR One, or listen in the WBEZ app. It is also super extra amazingly bonus helpful. If you leave us some stars on Apple Podcasts, many thanks to Emily of Mischief for the review. Emily called out that I use the word delightful a lot, and now I'm questioning whether I should stop using it, but I think I'm just going to lean into it. So, Emily, your review was truly delightful. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We are at Podcast. We have a newsletter. It is delightful. WBEZ.org slash Nerdsletter is where you can sign up for that. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Do your homework.